Welcome back to another episode of the Lynx Golf Podcast. This is digital editor Al Lunsford. And doing my part and being socially responsible by staying away from my co-host and the man joining me on the other side of the Skype line today, which is George Pepper, our editor. George, how's it going over there in Charleston, I believe you said? Charleston, yeah. Not too far from you. Only an hour or so. But uh, yeah, hanging in there, uh, hunkering down and suffering from master's deprivation like all of us this week. Yeah. And golf deprivation in general, as I understand it. When's the last time you played? Uh, A month ago. I'm being a good, responsible citizen. Perfect. Well, we are recording this uh, on the heels of of an announcement for the uh, most of golf's major championships are being postponed until later this year, um, with exception to the Open Championship, which is pushing everything back until 2021. George, what is this in terms of what it feels like in your years and years being around the game of golf? Can it compare to anything or is it just completely unprecedented? Yeah, it's just it's just totally weird. I mean, imagine playing the PGA as the first major. Uh, imagine not having an open championship for the first time in what 70 years or 75 years. Imagine playing the US Open in uh, September and uh, the Masters in November. It's just crazy. And last that part of that announcement also kind of affected uh, me a bit more directly. I'm a member of uh, Newport Country Club up in Rhode Island, and USGA just announced that they had they were going to hold the uh, the U.S. Senior Open there the week after the U.S. Open uh, this June. They just announced they're canceling that altogether. It will not be played later this year, and it will not be played at Newport next year. So. Uh, the folks at that club are pretty well devastated by that news, but really, yeah, there was no choice. It's, uh, it was out of our control. Right. What? I'm just kind of curious. What had, in terms of preparation, what had already been done there, or were they just in the initial phase right before they had to start building out? Yeah, well, it's not as if it's the Masters or the U.S. Open that they weren't expecting hundreds of thousands of people, but they were going to have to build some, do some infrastructure and, uh, you know, all the parking and travel routes and and the committees had been formed and had gotten hundreds of volunteers. And there was a group of people at uh, Newport who had been working hard for several years to put this together. And now all that work has gone to naught. Well, that is a shame. Um, I mean, what can you say with a, with a what's going on right now? It's right. it's hard to really uh, fathom everything that's already happened and what could possibly be next. But right. we shall see. Hopefully, we'll be returning to Augusta the week of November 9th through 15th is what they've announced. Have you been to Augusta National in the fall, George? You know, I don't think I have. No, the only times I've gone have been to the Masters. Yeah. I was there once in the winter, and first week in December, and it was actually under snow. But uh, no, it's going to be interesting. Uh, the azaleas won't be in bloom. I don't know mm-hmm. how warm it'll be. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if the golf course plays any any differently. Yeah, that'll be very interesting to see. And as it were, the the fact that we're playing in 2020 still means that it will be the 
65th anniversary of the dedication of the Saracen Bridge, which is a topic that George wrote about in the latest issue of Lynx Magazine, our spring 2020 issue. Not only did he write about it, but he had an interview with the the bridge itself. Yeah, it was um, an exclusive and, interview. I don't think uh, anyone else yeah. has ever spoken to a bridge and, yeah. and gotten any sort of response back other than maybe bouncing the ball up and it hitting you back in the face. But George secured that interview, and, and it's a really interesting and well-done piece, very creative. Um, but George has it's not the first time he's talked to an inanimate object from what i understand where does this this idea come from for you and and where does it date back to yeah where's the idea come that's actually a good question because i have done a few of these and usually it happens when i don't have an idea for my column i just have i have no idea what to write about because the easiest thing to interview is an inanimate object because you can control both sides of the conversation. <laughs> and I did this a couple times for uh, Golf Magazine. I, I can remember doing one, uh, an interview with the uh, Havermeyer Trophy, the U.S. Open Trophy. And it was just, it's a different way of imparting some information, a little bit less dry than just a straight report. And uh, in this case, I interviewed the, the trophy who had been around for 100 years. And I asked him about his beginnings and early years and, and was able to tell some things about it. it was destroyed in a fire at Bobby Jones's uh, East Lake Country Club. And of course, all the stories about uh, hanging out with the guys who had won and, and how they treated him. And, uh, and you're able to give this uh, inanimate object a, a persona. In this case, he was kind of uh, a lonely old guy who uh, didn't get much attention for 51 weeks of the year and then got too much attention for one week and uh, had some uh, views on life. I, but I do remember, I must have written this about 1988, 1989, because Curtis Strange was the defending champion at the time. Uh, we had a piece, uh, a cover article not too long ago in links by Forrest Richardson, Interview with a Bunker. And again, he was able, he did a terrific job on it and explained some of the thinking that goes into the design and building and strategy uh, of bunkers. And it's just, it's a different way of imparting information. Yeah. I think it's kind of, it, it's a more fun way. The last, I guess it's two times ago, column I did was an inter interview with the flagstick. Oh, it must have been last year for the Masters. Yeah. Interview with the 18th hole flagstick at Augusta. And um, again, I had sort of an agenda there because uh, I've been a long time proponent of not uh, touching flagstick. And I, so I was able to uh, kind of tell that through the eyes of, of the flagstick himself, who didn't like being thrust around and thrown down and picked up and, and basically abused. In fact, if there, I think if there's one silver lining to this coronavirus thing, it, I'm hoping maybe people will see being prohibited from touching the flagstick that it's not so, such a bad thing that you can play more quickly and occasionally the flagstick does knock your ball into the hole but anyway you can as i say you can you can control the conversation and have some fun and have some humor um, and i kind of just like sitting back saying what can i ask a flagstick and i remember writing that piece so well, what's another name for a flagstick well he's a flag he's a pole 
oh, Paul, ah, now I can ask him a question about his ethnic origins. And one of the lines in there was, now, Flystick, that's an Anglo-Saxon name, isn't it? He said, well, yeah, my the last couple of generations here at Augusta were English, but uh, originally we were all Poles. So it gives you that throwaway line. And uh, it's just, it's fun to do. And uh, if you can... Uh, give the people who are reading it a little bit of knowledge at the same time it works and that was kind of the idea with the the Sarazen Bridge also it's, I don't think it's a tremendous history I mean anything momentous that it was uh, 65 years ago that the bridge went up but uh, it enabled me to poke a little fun at, um, at the other bridges the Sarazen Bridge being very envious of the Hogan and Nelson Bridges Right. Uh, which appeared earlier on the course, and they call the Sarazen Bridge a bridge too far. And, uh, you know, they get all the attention because they're at Amen Corner, and and they're much more gracefully arching over Ray's Creek, whereas the Sarazen is face down in this nameless pond. And he says, if you think you like that, and being stomped upon by people with spikes, and he said Hogan was a, a, a real wuss. He's thought of as this tough guy, but the Hogan Bridge now. Mm-hmm. was just a complainer. He always complained about uh, being cold in the breezes there. And they finally had to put AstroTurf over him and Nelson. And the Sarazen Bridge refers to the AstroTurf as their shawls. And uh, so he was, he, he was a very uh, a bitter bridge. But uh, we got some, you know, we t- told some stories about good scores that have been made at the 15th, about some of the design and how people play the 15th hole. And uh, as I say, in the course of it all, you, you hope somebody learns something and also gets a few laughs. Sure. Yeah, it's an interesting way to do it. Um, it's really, really creative. And you can impart your agenda on someone else and make it seem like someone else is having that opinion. It's got right. Funny. Yeah. Well, but, um, I, you know, I'm a curmudgeon. I can make the bridge be the curmudgeon. <laughs> Let him talk. Well, I have done my own research, and but for those who haven't and don't know the background and history of, of why there even is a, a Saracen Bridge at the 15th hole at Augusta National, um, can you give us a brief rundown of, of what possibly, what monumentous moment led to the construction of this bridge? Right. Yeah, of course, it was uh, 1935, the second playing of the Masters, Gene Sarazen famously came to the 15th hole. Uh, I believe he was three strokes behind at the time. And uh, he uh, struck a forward 230-yard second shot, went over the water and into the hole for a double eagle, referred to as the shot heard round the world. And he went on to win that Masters. And uh, he thus became the first uh, person to complete the career Grand Slam, winning all four of the professional major championship. So I don't think there has since been a shot to equal that one. And it's now uh, uh, 86 years ago, 85. So you would still consider that to be the best shot in master's history? Uh, In master's or any other history. Really? Uh, Yeah, it's close because, of course, it didn't happen on the last hold. But uh, in terms of just the length of the shot hold, and it is, you know, a double eagle, not an eagle. And... uh, I mean, there's been great ones. The Larry Mize shot that won the playoff, basically. That was mm-hmm. pretty good, too. Tiger Woods' chip at 16, pretty amazing shot. Sandy Lyle's shot out of the bunker at 18. The Masters has produced a whole bunch of them. But uh, I think if you ask most golf historians, they'll put Gene's pretty high, if not number one. 
did they play an 18 hole playoff back then they did. to decide yeah. it yeah. yeah so he so that went he was down three with four holes to play does that immediately makes those shots back up right. um and then got to a playoff right and won that yeah won right. the 18 hole playoff the next day and I, I'm just going to throw this in there again. I made the astute observation. I don't know if anyone can fact check this for me, but is it called the Grand Slam because Gene Saracen was the first one to accomplish it? And those two phrases, name and phrase, have the same initials. <laughs> That's a nice try, but I don't, I, I don't think so. I'm going to run with it. They didn't have a, a word for it. I think Grand Slam might have been a bridge term. Uh not a Saracen Bridge term. Wordplay, uh, I love that. When, when Jones won, I think it was Grantland Rice, the golf writer, referred to it as the impregnable quadrilateral. And Darwin, Bernard Darwin, referred to it as being an impregnable uh, achievement. Uh, most people give Arnold Palmer credit for coming up with the the idea of the Grand Slam, if not the term, uh, on a plane to the British Open in, in 1960, having won the Masters in the U.S. Open. He said, you know, if I could win the British Open and the PGA, that'd be sort of a Grand Slam. And a golf writer by the name of Bob Drum was with him at the time, and he put the word out about winning these four major titles. And uh, that's really where it came from, I think, in golf. Yeah. You've played Augusta. Did you walk across the Saracen Bridge when you played 15, or did you do like we see so many other people tend to hug the right side, especially if you're going to go for the green? There's a lot more room over there. Yeah, well, I probably sliced my second shot. I've played it uh, four times, I think, and I must have walked across it once. I think I would have made a point of at least making myself go over there, but it's kind of the natural path as you play the hole. Maybe it's because you watch it so much on TV, and I think most of the uh, the competitors in the Masters do take the right-hand <laughs> road, so to speak. You, you sort of gravitate. I think the caddies tend to walk that way. The Yeah, probably three and one, three right and one left. And so what year would this have been for you if you, if you were to have gone – this week, I 36. Funny story. I, I and I thought it was pretty cool to have that many. But I was at a uh, golf writer's dinner with the late uh, Dan Jenkins two years ago, and uh, we had occasion to sit next to each other. And he asked me, he "said How many for you?" He said, "I said 34, feeling pretty cool about that." And I said, "And how about you?" He said, "68," <laughs> which is exactly twice as many as. <laughs> At it that time, and that sadly was his last. But that is a record: sixty-eight consecutive Masters that uh, no one, writer or otherwise, I don't think has ever achieved or will ever approach. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it would have been uh, my first one was nineteen seventy-six when when Ray Floyd. I was a cub reporter for Golf Magazine at the time, and uh, right after that uh, tournament, I was assigned to do three instruction articles with him. So that was, I always remember that. And uh, yeah, I've had some, some good memories for sure. What else do you remember about that first visit? Gee, well, every, what everyone tells you is you, you're just uh, gobsmacked by the elevation change on the 10th hole and to a lesser extent, even the first hole, the, the second hole, the television cannot do justice to the, uh, 
you know, it's just the, the deep swoops and climbs that are in that property. And uh, just the whole atmosphere, it's just, it's unlike anything else. Yeah, I was just, uh, that was one of the first professional tournaments I ever seen, and it kind of spoiled me for all the others. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say. What about over the years? Does anything stick out from a particular year or any well, yeah. moments? There have been a bunch of tournaments. I mean, I mentioned Larry Mize. I, I will um, admit to not being a great one to go out and follow the play on Sunday. I uh, like. I think many of my brethren in the press would hang back and watch the tournaments on television because you really can't see it. If you're really trying to see the action and, and report on it and absorb it all, television is the only way to do it. And we used to sit on Sunday afternoon, some of us would sit in the clubhouse in the uh, kind of the dining room there. And I remember in 87 when uh, it was uh, Norman, Ballesteros, and Mize. Of course, Mize won on the 11th hole. Ballesteros was eliminated on, uh, on the 10th. And we're all sitting there watching the screen and uh, the Norman and, and Mize are playing 11. In the middle of all this, Seve walks into the clubhouse and walks right through the dining room. While the playoff is still going on, he's been eliminated. And it was just kind of a surreal moment. We're watching it on television over his head as he walks by in front of us. And that was a strange moment. I had one of the great times I had was, uh, oddly enough, 2011, not a particularly famous Masters. It was the year Charles Schwartzel buried the last four holes, though, and, and won. And I enjoyed that mostly because my son was there. I had been able to get him and his uh, buddy tickets, and we sat at the 18th green and watched it all happen. Although when you sit at the 18th green, you can't see anything. And it was one of the most exciting Masters ever. I mean, Tiger was in it, Rory was in it, uh, Adam Scott was in it. And we really didn't see anything. We could only watch the scoreboard and watch uh, Schwartzel as he birdies 15, 16, 17, and 18. And that was that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been lucky to uh, have been there on Sunday for both uh, Nicholas's last victory and Tiger's first. And I have to say that those Sundays were unlike any others I had ever witnessed there or really anywhere else. Not only the unfolding of the tournament, but, but the atmosphere afterwards, where there was just this this buzz, this aura about it. You, you, know, you knew that you had been witness to something pretty special. Yeah. And, and I, I probably if I have one memory, <clears throat> it would go back to Nicholas. Um on that Sunday, and I mean, most people talk about the, the last nine holes he played. My memory actually comes from the end of the first nine he played on Sunday, and there used to be a, a, a grandstand for the press to the left of the 18th green, and I went out there, I don't know, it must have been two two or three o'clock, something like that, and clambered up to the top of it. And if you're up on the top, you can see both the 18th and look over the back and see the ninth green. And a few moments after I got there, Nicholas made his way up to number nine. And at that point, he was, I don't know, six or seven shots back, playing about even par. And uh, he had left himself a, sort of a twisting 30-foot putt from the right side of the uh, green. Pin was at the back. To the pin and he gets over it deliberate as he is he kind of hunches over and is about to take the club back when we hear this tremendous roar from the eighth hole this is like 500 yards away up on the top of the hill 
And what had happened is Tom Kite had holed his wedge shot from 120 yards or something for an eagle. And the place went bonkers. And I think he may have taken the lead at that point. And so, you know, this Jack had just been about to hit it and he stepped back and everybody kind of you know, giggled a little bit and Jack kind of looked funny. So he gets back over the ball and he's ready to hit it again. He's just about to take the club back and another even bigger roar comes out of the same place, Keith Green. This time, Seve, playing with Kite, had also holed out for a three. Chipped in, I think. Wow. So this is it's just kind of funny. And uh, Jack, I remember, kind of looked around. Everybody says, well, let's see if we can make a little noise of our own. And everybody laughed. Good for you, old man. You know, hang in there. This is the, the olden bear, and we're all rooting for you to have a good finish. And he gets back over the ball and proceeds to sink that putt. And, of course, the place goes crazy. Nobody ever thought he had any sort of a chance at that time. He was five or six behind. But the rest, of course, is history. He butts through the back nine, I think it was 30, and uh, and won it. So that was – that. I will never forget that. I think uh, that's a moment I feel is mine that not too many people witnessed. That's incredible. Well, I'm sure you look forward to making or having many more memories here soon. What do you think it's going to be like to have two masters within the span of five months? You know, well, let's no, hope we don't have another coronavirus in 2021. <laughs> Good point. Uh, yeah, that'll be interesting. It, 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 the Masters champion will, will hold it less than anyone else. I haven't really done the math on this, but I guess the uh, PGA will be the one that's held longest. Well, no, it'll be the Open Championship. That's what's going to be really weird, I think. No Open Champion. And uh, yeah, I, I guess they, they, it was meant to be held at St. Andrews next year. And I think part of the th- thinking that they're just going to go from Royal St. George's this year to Royal St. George's next year, uh, rather than holding it at St. Andrews, is... Uh, there will be a competition with the Olympics in July. So I think the third week of July, the Open will be either that weekend or the weekend before. And I don't think the RNA wants to have the Open at St. Andrews in competition with the Olympics. That's why they didn't hold it at St. Andrews this year, as they normally would have every 20 or 25, 5 or 10. So uh, it's interesting that they're they're letting St. Uh, George's go ahead and hold it next year. Um, yeah. But yeah, it'll be interesting. The Masters will be very interesting this year <laughs> in November. I think probably we'll be more up for it than ever. Uh, it'll probably decide the player of the year at that point because there will have been only three majors. And uh, unless somebody wins both the uh, PGA and the uh, and the U.S. Open and tears up the tour, it'll the, the Masters will have a major impact. It'll be after the Fed, FedEx Cup. And they will yeah. have to delay the designation of all of the year-end awards and everything else until the playing of the Masters. And I, I haven't looked at the new PGA Tour schedule, but I, I just have to believe the calendar or however they work the season for the PGA Tour, normally ending in September, can't go too much further than that. It'll be interesting yeah. to see. But, yeah. Or maybe maybe they'll just say, well, the heck with it. We'll just count two Masters for two, 2021 PGA uh, Tour Player of the Year. Because wow. it, you know, if you use the usual PGA Tour calendar, it'd be in somewhere in October, and this will be several weeks into that. Yes. 
You'll have the, the only player to win the Masters twice in a PGA Tour yeah. season. Yes, when you win the Masters title twice this year, we had to give it to you. <laughs> You're the player of the year. Yeah. All right, last thing I got for you, if you can do it for the sake of conversation, your favorite hole at Augusta, your least favorite hole at Augusta. Mm, boy, you know, as a, as a viewer, I guess it has to be 13 because it has the capacity to, you know, produce a three or a, a nine. Sadly, it's getting to be a bit easy for these guys now. If they can, you know, as long as they can make the ball go from right to left off the tee, they're going to be hitting the middle iron into the green. But over the years, that's produced more drama than any other. Least favorite would be uh, number seven. That's an interesting hole. Originally, the green there was somewhere left and short of the current green, well down the slope. It was a par four of about 320 yards. And I think Byron Nelson or somebody may have driven or something anyway. It became clear that this was the weak point of the golf course. And I don't know how long ago this was, 50 years ago. They redesigned the hole and put this raised green up there. And it was still a short hole. It was probably the shortest, along with uh, number three, the shortest par four on the course. So they hit driver, nine iron, wedge. And that green was designed to receive a nine iron or a wedge. These days, they're not hitting, they're hitting more like eights and sevens and occasionally fives uh, when the wind's blowing, as sometimes it does that way. So I, I think that, and particularly for the members, it's just not a hole that played from at the distance it is now, it is a hole with much integrity, I guess is the word. Yeah. Especially compared to all the other ones around yeah. it. Yeah. Well, hopefully that does spark a little conversation. Um, and people can feel free to send us what they think their favorite holes or least favorite holes are. And maybe they send what their favorite, you know, object or symbol is as well. Maybe it is the Saracen Bridge. Could be something else. Yeah, give me uh, some ideas for interview subjects. At Augusta? No, I'm, t- I'm asking the readers to do that, yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, send us in your best uh, your best objects out there, um, anything famous. Do you, Have you thought who you might like to talk to? I would actually think I would like to talk to the uh, Clara Jug because I think he's going to be very lonely this year. Yeah. And probably a bit bitter. Uh, so maybe uh, looking forward, see if I can get a moment with him or her. Yeah, we'll we'll pull some strings. We'll see what we can do to get George his sacred interview with the Claret Jug coming soon. Be on the lookout for that sometime in the future. But for now, George, I appreciate you joining me again. You gonna watch a replay of the Masters on Sunday just to feel like you're you're doing it like you do every year? No, I think I'll just have a mint julep and feel sorry for myself. Yeah, that works. All right. Well, until next time, we'll talk to you guys again soon. Thanks, George. Okay. Wash your hands.